We are moving on in the book of Luke. Believe it or not, we're going to, uh, I know, I know it's hard to believe, we're going to see about going from Luke uh, 11 verses 14 all the way through 23. I don't know if your pew has a seatbelt on it, you might want to, you know, buckle up. We get through that many verses, I don't know. We, we might, we might. So when Jesus got up to speak, um, there might be a tendency to think that surely Jesus said something new every time he opened his mouth, right? I mean, he must have come up with something new, but I actually don't know that that is, in fact, the case. I think that Jesus had particular truths. Jesus went from city to city and town to town, from place to place, and I think the message that he gave was probably quite similar. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, Those were truths, those were eternal truths, and I think you didn't just have to be on the hillside in Galilee to get those truths. I think Jesus shared them. In fact, we know that there was the Sermon on the Plain, very familiar and very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's just recorded differently. It may very well have been virtually identical to the Sermon on the Mount. I think the truths that Jesus gave, he gave a number of times. The passage we're looking at today Uh, there's a similar passage to it in Matthew. I personally don't think they're the same passage. I'll get into why as we begin to unfold this. What occurs in this passage is that Jesus performs a miracle, a notable miracle. And then we look at the response of the people who were present for this miracle. It's not what you'd think. So, Let me read this, and and then we'll go through it. He was casting out a demon, Luke 11, 14, and he was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. The crowds were amazed. But some of them, some of those in the crowd, said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? But if I cast demons out by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. This is the record of the miracles of Jesus. He performs these miracles, and when he's done here, he draws as bright a line as it's possible to draw. He states it right there at the end. If you are not with me, you're against me. Neutrality is not allowed. Jesus deliberately does not allow neutrality to be allowed. You cannot simply say, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher. I mean, he's a great guy. I don't think he's really God, but he's a nice guy. Jesus, make sure you have no room to stand on that position. 
He just, he just eliminates it. You're either for Jesus and who he says he is, or you're against Jesus and who he says he is. So this comes about at this moment. So what we're looking at here are some miracles, or a particular miracle. There's a guy there. He's mute. Can't speak. He's mute because of a demon. Jesus cast the demon out. Now, we happen to have a fairly large group of folk in our own particular world who seem to have this notion, and they, they kind of promote it with some regularity, that if we could just do miracles, boy, that would really help. You know, miracles are a great evangelistic tool. We get people together, and if we can just do miracles, then people are going to finally just believe and turn to God. Sounds good, I Sounds good. You'd like to think that if you saw a miracle, you'd... And and maybe if you did, your faith would be strengthened. Maybe. Uh, The role of strengthening the faith of believers, however, is completely different than the role of actually convincing unbelievers. Do miracles actually convince unbelievers? Well, if you just look at the biblical record, uh, okay, God created the heavens and the earth. It's clearly miraculous. It's... How many unsaved people do you know who, they don't believe a word of that. Noah had the flood. There's a record of a worldwide flood. There's a layer of silt that they find pretty much everywhere they look on the whole planet. How many, how many unsaved people do you know who are like, oh, well, Noah, that convinced me. How many people do you think Noah convinced? Uh, let's see, I think we can count them up. Eight. Yeah, that's how many folks got on the boat. Uh, the boat, granted, was not miraculous. I think Noah just built it, but nonetheless... All that preaching, nobody. Uh, God speaks to Job, uh, Job. he speaks to Abraham, he speaks to Isaac, he speaks to Jacob. As far as actual, as it were, at will, someone who can just do miracles, you have to get to Moses. So Moses goes into Pharaoh, does ten signs, which basically totally humiliates the ten major Egyptian gods. Up to and including Pharaoh himself, who is supposed to be a god, and his son is supposed to be a god. And, of course, the true god just humiliates them every single one of them. They worship the sun, they worship the Nile, they worship the frog. I mean, you just get down to the list. Everything that Moses goes after, they worshiped. Humiliates them all. And then he takes the children of Israel out of there. They actually march across the Red Sea on dry ground. And when the Egyptians tried to do the same thing, they all drowned. Now, you would think... If ever any generation of people were like, okay, boy, do we have faith. I'm telling you right now, I mean, we have seen the power of God. And we are the most faithful, godly people you've ever met. Uh, Well, you know, that would not actually be the case. Um, They were the most miserable, grumbling, complaining group of people up to, uh, we just read a psalm. That goes on, by the way. It's a fairly lengthy psalm. We only read the first seven verses. But it goes on and basically points out that don't be like that generation in the wilderness. They saw all these miracles. Do you know, if you just stop and think about it, the manna. On the sixth day, you collected twice as much manna. If you collected twice as much manna on any other day of the week, it rotted. So every six days, not to mention the fact that the manna itself fell, but every six days you actually got a a manna miracle. What'd that do for them? Not much. All right, you're thinking, well, the next generation. All right, so the next generation manages to, under Joshua, actually go in, and they do conquer the land. Joshua is another guy. Great miracles under Joshua. Joshua is is able to do all kinds of miraculous things. 
It's, it's wonderful. But when it's all done, what does he stand up and say? Look, you guys, get out there and conquer the rest of the land. I mean, Joshua, everywhere he went, he won. He went north, south, east, west. I mean, he got, you know, the basic boundaries. But there were all kinds of cities. I mean, Joshua can't conquer every city in the place. He's got to send them out. And he looks at him and says, look, you guys, if, if Baal is God, worship him. But if he's not, then worship the true God. I mean, as for me and my house, we're going to worship the true God. He has to say that at the end of his life, after all these people have seen all of this miraculous victory, it didn't matter what the odds were. If you just went to battle, God made sure you won. You have to wait another quite a while. You finally get, you know, the, the kingdom divides and not to get into all that Old Testament history. But come Sunday nights, we get into it greatly. And it's, it's extremely instructive. So we get to now Elijah and Elisha. Again, two more guys who can do miracles at will. Elijah ends up on the top of Mount Carmel, you'll recall, and he finally gets everybody to kill the prophets of, of Baal, but then Jezebel is like, God do the same to me and more also, if Elijah's not dead by the time the sun goes down, and instead of standing up to her, he runs for his life. They kill the prophets of Baal, but is there any real repentance? Eh, not so much. Elisha, he gets a double portion of the spirit of Elijah, which is just amazing. Elijah's like, I don't, I mean, you could pray for that, huh? Whether God can do that, we'll see. But if you actually look at the life of Elijah and the miracles he did, and you look at the life of Elisha and the miracles he did, Elisha actually does a, he gets a double portion, and what he does with the other portion is he does many good things. He is kind of a, he's more of a healer. He's a guy who does things that help, as opposed to, like Elijah, he calls fire down from heaven on people. Now, Elisha can do that, too. The bears come out, and, you know, he he calls the bears on the kids, you know, make fun of him. Uh, But on the whole, the ministry of Elisha is one of health, healing, taking, you know, building up. Then we come to Jesus and his apostles and the 70. Okay, so the ability to perform at-will miracles. You got Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and his disciples. Does Moses and Joshua bring about revival? Not so much. Do Elijah and Elisha bring about revival? Not so much. I mean, they have their ministry, but there's no nationwide repentance. Both Elisha and Elijah, Elijah and Elisha deal with the northern tribes, and when they're done their ministry, they get hauled off because they don't repent. Uh, and then you end up with Jesus and his disciples. And the question is, all right, do miracles really get the job done? Well, talk about miracles. I mean, Jesus does miracles that are just unbelievable. And they happen over and over And over, the question is, particularly these people who know their Old Testament quite well, who love Moses, who would know the story of Adam and Eve, they would know the story of Noah, they would know the story of Moses and Joshua, they would know the story of Elijah and Elisha, and they would say, why, if the prophets lived in our day, we would listen to them and obey them. Think so, huh? Well, all right, here comes the very Son of God. Forget a prophet. This is the very Son of God. How are you doing listening to him? Uh, you know, not so much. Now, the reason why it's important to look at, and we're not actually going to turn there, but if you were to turn to the account in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, if you were doing like your own harmony of the Gospels, if you're like, okay, I really want to understand the Gospels, well, here's what you do. Get four Bibles, which we can do actually, lay them out there, and... And get one piece of paper, 
with four columns and go through the Gospels and see if you can figure out exactly when each event occurs and then you can end up with a harmony of the Gospels. It's a great exercise. It's much more challenging than you might think. Some's pretty straightforward. But like this passage, this passage occurs in Matthew. When it occurs in Matthew, it's, it's similar, except the guy is mute and blind. But the response is very similar. The same group of people, the Pharisees, are like, well, he just casts out demons by Beelzebub, the, same, the, the prince of demons. And Jesus has an exchange with them. We know that that event occurs in Galilee, and it occurs early in the ministry of Jesus. The fact is, when Jesus first arrives on the scene, John the Baptist shows up and Jesus shows up. If you're a religious leader and you're looking at this guy and you're thinking, well, it would appear he's doing miracles, but you know, he's not, we don't know where this guy came from. He's not a Levite. Um, it's wrong tribe here. He's not a priest. How does he even know the scriptures like he seems to know them? Uh, we, as religious leaders, have a responsibility to protect the people, so it would appear he can do miracles, but we should listen carefully and make sure that this guy is not leading people astray. And because he's clearly doing miracles that we cannot account for, there's only two choices. You only have two choices. It's either God or the other supernatural power out there is Satan. Those are your two choices, one or the other. And what he's doing is clearly supernatural. That's also a really important point to make. No one denies his ability to actually do miracles. Remember that. His most vocal critics, the people who are literally going to get him crucified, even though they know he's innocent, those people, they don't deny he does the miracles. They don't deny the miracles of Jesus. They don't go, well, that wasn't really a miracle. Oh, no. They, they, yes, these are miracles. They just move on to attribute them. Now, what's important to recognize is that the Matthew account occurs probably within the first year of Jesus' ministry. This account in Luke, Jesus is only weeks away from actually going to the cross. You know, from the early ministry where there's still really not much excuse. If you're actually paying any attention to Alda, who Jesus is and what he's doing, and John the Baptist... There's every reason to, even at that point, to repent and to believe and to turn to Jesus. But the fact that you are now two and a half years later, and he's been doing this the whole time, and you're still coming up with the same excuse? No. No. Which is why Jesus ends this with, you know, you need to decide. You're either with me or you're against me. You, you need to make... Make up your mind. All right. So, let's just kind of work our way through the passage here. Verse 14. He, he was casting out a demon. Again, it was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowd was amazed. One of the ways that Jesus proves that he is the Messiah is that he does miracles. Remember when the disciples of John came to him and said, Are you? I mean, John's in prison. Are you? you actually the Messiah? Or, you know, we kind of get this wrong somehow. And remember, he goes out and he does a bunch of miracles. And he says, you know, the leper is cleansed and the blind see and the lame walk and, you know, all of these things and the gospel is preached to the poor. Just go back and tell John that. This is what the Messiah is going to do. Remember that this particular group of people, he's now very close to Jerusalem. This is not the Galilean crowd. This is not Nazareth. This is not, this is not back in the Galilean region. This is 
And it's a couple of days walk. I mean, this is a ways away. This is, because you have to walk everywhere, it takes a while to get from Galilee over towards Jerusalem. He's towards Jerusalem. So this is a different group of people. This is not the same group of people who saw him do all the miracles in Galilee. So he's, but it's a similar miracle. I mean, Jesus is doing the miracles that he's doing. So he's cast out this demon who couldn't speak from a guy who couldn't speak, and suddenly the guy can talk. Some of them, now the crowd is amazed. I mean, most of the people in the crowd are like, "Did did you see that? That is just astounding. They're just amazed. But some of them, we know, the religious leaders have to come up with some, you know, they're looking at them like, hey, you can't do that. I mean, you're over here. You say you speak for God, but I don't see you casting out any demons. You giving sight to the blind and helping the lame. So they've got to come up with some reason as to how in the world he's doing this. So they they say um, he's doing this by Beelzebub which your translation might say Beelzebub with a B. That's okay. Either one of those is fine. This is basically a transliterated word. They just take the Greek word and stick it in the English. And it occurs in the Greek with both of those endings, depending on what you're trying to get across. So they say he does this by Beelzebub. Now, here's the problem. Why? Why? Why would they say this? Well, because the Messiah, when he shows up, He's supposed to be fomenting rebellion against Rome. I mean, this is what the Messiah does. He's a political leader. He's going to come here and he's going to lead us into great victory over the Romans. Politics. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Jesus will come back and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron and that event will come to pass. But... What he's doing is so much more. He's not giving them victory over Rome. Who cares about victory over Rome? He's giving them victory over sin. He's giving them eternal life. This is so much bigger than politics. But all they can see is just the political. He's supposed to be our Messiah. He's supposed to be this king. He's supposed to lead us into some kind of battle against the Romans and lead us to victory so that we can rule the world. Um, He's not doing that. So, okay, that's Mark number one. He can't be the Messiah. Two, they're looking at the law of Moses and they're saying, look, we know what the law of Moses is. We've studied it. We've studied it with a fine-tooth comb. We've taken the law of Moses and, and reduced it down to 613 separate commandments. And guess what? We keep them all. And because we are keeping those commandments, we are ceremonially clean. We are not unclean. If you read your Old Testament, the whole idea of being unclean. If you're unclean, you can't worship God. If you're unclean, you can't give sacrifice. If you're unclean, you can't, you, you're not able to come into the worship of God and the assembly of God and, and to get near the temple of God. You're not clean. They're like, we're clean. Not only are we clean, we've been clean, and we've been clean for quite a while now. We have been ceremonially clean for years. I mean, who knows how long they think they've been. So we know that we speak for God. This guy, we don't know about this guy. In fact, this guy eats with unwashed hands. This guy breaks the Sabbath. This guy is going out. I mean, he's healing people on the Sabbath. God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't break the Sabbath. God wouldn't, wouldn't actually heal people on the Sabbath. Ah, oh, Lord save us all, right? Ah, so... What do they do? Well, 
they say, he does this by Beelzebul. Why? Because they are outraged. The people, they love this guy. They don't love them, and they're well aware, by the way, that the people don't love them. They're, they're literally a bunch of religious hypocrites. They wouldn't lift a finger for you. In fact, the guy with the withered hand, we're covered with the guy with the withered hand. Who cares? We don't care about the lame of the blind. We don't care. I mean, they, they, they broadcast it. If Jesus is going to show up and heal people, let him do it on the other six days of the week. Who cares about that guy who's standing here in our synagogue with his withered hand? He can just keep his withered hand or chase Jesus to the next town. I mean, we don't. It's like, oh. And you guys speak for God, huh? Wow, what kind of God do you actually speak for? What a horrible thing to do and say. So they're looking at Jesus like, this guy's just making us look bad. So he must be doing it by Beelzebub. Now what's interesting is Beelzebub is, is a, it's a really interesting word. Baal, right? Baal. Back in the Old Testament, this is a Hebrew word that's getting turned into the Greek. So Baal of the Old Testament was the, was the god of the, of the hills, you know, an ancient Canaanite god, god of the high places. When they went, and you read in the Old Testament that they went up and worshipped on the high places, well, that's generally Baal worship. Baal is the god of the high places. Well, they took the name Baal, Baal, E-L, by the way, God, L, Lord, Lord of the high places, and they added this word, Zbul, Zbul. And it's one of those words that sounds like what it is, fly. That's, okay, so they took Lord of the high places and turned it into Lord of the flies. And what we mean by Lord of the flies is we're not just talking about the flies, we're talking about what flies fly around. Refuse. Dung. Basically, now, they, this term was not coined just in the life of Jesus. This term had been coined for some time now. They were making fun of Baal. He's just the Lord of dung. That's who he is. He's the Lord of the flies. The Lord of stink. He's, he's the Lord of the... Anyway, you get the idea. So, but they take this term and... Of all the terms, and there are a number of terms you can use for Satan, you know, there's a variety of them, but this is the one they use. Why? He does this by the power of dung. I mean, that's what they're basically saying. This guy is just energized by dung. He's just doing this by the power of the Lord of the flies, that's all. What he's doing smells. And this is what they're saying. This is obviously a very ad hominem attack. They are attacking the person of Jesus. That's not new, by the way. If you have an opponent and you can't come up with any real facts, just go after their person. And so, well, I'll tell you how he's doing all these miracles. He's just doing it by Lord of the Tongue. That's how he's doing them. And uh, now what's interesting, of course, is when you look at that, and I've mentioned this, but they don't deny the miracle. They don't deny he's doing the miracle. And they hate him. But even the people who hate him don't deny his ability to perform miracles. And when you look at, you know, Matthew 23, you can see why they hate him. I mean, he just gets up and he just lambastes them. 
you guys are hypocrites. And, and he's been saying that for quite a while, actually. I mean, it's not like he just started in Matthew 23. He just kind of really finishes them off in Matthew 23. So when Jesus performs these miracles, I mean, there's no question. There's no question. I mean, go to the blind man and interview him. They did, in fact. We have the record of it. It's like, so is this guy a prophet of God or not? Well, I don't know, but I'll tell you this. Whereas I was blind, now I see Surely that's the work of God, right? I mean, has it ever been recorded in the history of the world that someone gave sight to the blind? Don't be trying to teach us, you. Why? Do you guys want to be his disciple? And, you know, it's, they, they can and they did interview that guy. They weren't happy with what he said. The lame man took up his bed and walked. Who told you you could lug your bed around? This is the Sabbath. Uh, the guy who gave me the ability to walk told me I could take my bed with me. I, you know, I, He's right over there, you know. Uh, the lepers are cleansed. Go see the priest and tell him you got your leprosy cleansed. Some of them did. Some of them didn't, but some of them did. The guy with the withered hand, I mean, it happens in front of their very eyes. And by the way, if you want to talk to someone who's risen from the dead, go find Lazarus. He's in Bethany. He's just not far, a couple of miles from Jerusalem. Just wander right over there, interview him. Oh, we know about Lazarus, all right. As soon as we kill Jesus, we're going to work on killing him again. Ah, really? Is that right? Really? How'd that work the first time, by the way? Uh, you know, he's already died once, so you're sure that's, that's going to work. Um, so this is where they're at. It's important for us as believers to understand that the miracles are not denied. If you have people who say to you, well, I, you know, the, the Bible is just written by Jesus' friends. And of course, they're going to make him look good. Well, let's look at Jesus' enemies. Let's look at what they accused him of. And, what, and they didn't accuse him of not doing the miracle. They just accused him of doing it by the power of the devil. And, of course, Jesus, back in the Matthew account, he expounds a little more and says to them, look, make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree evil and its fruit evil, but good people do good things. Others tested him, demanding a sign from heaven. Yeah, yeah, sure, you can make the mute talk and the blind see and the lame walk, but, I mean, we want to see a real miracle. Really? It's like, it's like yeah, sure, you walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope and you did it backwards and, and blindfolded, but, I don't know, let's see you do something really spectacular, you know? I mean, it's like, what, what is wrong with you people? A sign from heaven, I mean, okay, the... He is the Messiah. He's fulfilled all of the signs that are necessary to be fulfilled. But since you want to see a great sign from heaven, just wait to the crucifixion. The place will turn dark for three hours, and that's, that's no eclipse. Eclipses don't, don't last for three hours. So he knew their thoughts. So he called fire down from heaven and just burned them all up, right? I mean, I... That's what I'd be tempted to do. It's like, what is wrong with you people? How long have I been here? I've been here over three years. I've been doing miracles. Have you noticed? Jesus basically eradicates illness in the Galilean region between him and the 12 and the 70. I mean, just go everywhere. And anyone who's got any kind of illness at all, they, they take care of it. This is not just one or two big things on an occasion. This is like everywhere he goes, you, you just read the accounts. The town empties out, and they bring every sick person they can find, and they heal them all. He reverses the curse. And yet here we are, 
right at the end of his life, and they're, well, he's just doing it because he's empowered by Satan. How does Jesus respond to this? How would we respond to this? I'd be, bring the fire down. But not Jesus. Jesus actually takes his time and calmly reasons with them. He knew their thoughts and he said to them, all right, stop for just a second, guys. Really, please, just think about this for a minute. This is the approach of Jesus. He He doesn't get all angry and lose his cool and say something he has to regret. or He just calmly speaks to them and says, listen, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided by itself falls. This is indisputable. Once a civil war begins, you just tear yourself apart. And whether that happens in your nation, whether that happens in a family, whether that happens in a church, whatever kind of organization, once you start the circle firing squad and start, and start shooting at one another, this is not going to go good. Houses divided against themselves fall apart. That goes. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. One could imagine that they, because it says he read their thoughts, so they're not really throwing this out right at him. They've kind of learned it's don't, don't challenge Jesus. It doesn't go good. So they're apparently kind of mumbling this to one another. They're, they're not really saying it out loud. But Jesus knows what they're saying. And so he throws this out. Now, because they've just been mumbling, they may, they may very well be looking at him and going, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, this is a great strategy. Paul pursues this strategy, remember, when he stands before the Sanhedrin. After he's been arrested, he said, for the resurrection, I'm standing here today. And, of course, the Pharisees all believe in the resurrection. And none of the Sadducees do. And the next thing you know, they're at it with one another. So, Jesus says the kingdom divided can't stand. And they're, they're probably like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then he says, so if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? If you've been nodding along, you immediately stop nodding. I mean, he just brings it home. It's like, just stop and think about this for a second. Is Satan really going to empower me to undo his kingdom? The guy was demon-possessed. I got rid of the demon, and I took the guy who had the handicap, and I took away his handicap. The guy was disabled. I enabled him. He couldn't speak, and now he can. Is that what Satan does? Y'all know what demon possession is. It makes the walking lame, and the seeing blind, and the hearing deaf, and the speaking mute. That's what demon possession does. Jesus is like, are you looking at what I'm doing here? You say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Well, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. An interesting verse. There's two basic views on how to view this verse. Sons. Who are the sons that will judge them? One view is that these are the exorcists of Judaism. And we know about those. Remember the seven sons of Savitas? We read about them in Acts. Remember they went in to cast out the demon and they said, we adjure you by the name of Jesus and of Paul to come out of the man. And the demon looks at him and says, well, Paul, I know, and Jesus, I know. Who in the world are you? And they leap on him, and the seven sons of Savitas have to run, and he just rips their clothes right off them. They all run out of the house naked. Okay, that's there. That's how it works when they do exorcisms. How's it go? Not so well. So one view is that that's what Jesus is talking about. 
It's like, look, if you talk to your own sons who are trying to cast out demons and ask them how it goes, they get all kinds of crazy rituals and all kinds of stuff they're doing. And, and you know, the, the bottom line is it's not really working. It's all done. It still doesn't work. Whereas if you look at what Jesus is doing with the word, he just speaks the word and the demons run for their lives. So that's one view. The other view is that these are his disciples. And the day of judgment he's speaking about here is the ultimate day of judgment. Like he says, the queen of Sheba will arise with this generation and will condemn you because she came at the wisdom of Solomon and a greater than Solomon is here. Sodom and Gomorrah, will, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah will arise and will come here because they, they heard and they, you guys are worse than them. They didn't get the light that you got. So that's the second view. I'm inclined to go with his disciples, if you want to know where I'm at with this. I'm inclined to go with these talking about his disciples. But if you really wanted to twist my arm, you might be able to convince me of the other side. But I think it's so they will be your judges. I, I think that pins it down pretty good because we see the record that Jesus talks about on the day of judgment. There will, in fact, be people who, as it were, stand up and give testimony that, you know, Nineveh. Nineveh will condemn this this. Uh, the generation of Jesus because they repented of the preaching of, of Jonah. And greater than Jonah is here, and you guys aren't repenting. Then he says, but, okay, if I cast out demons, if I'm not doing it by Beelzebub, but instead I'm doing it by the finger of God, well, the kingdom of God has come to you. Finger of God. This is one of those great reasons why you should read your Old Testament. When Moses, and oh, didn't they love Moses. When Moses did the miracles, remember Moses goes before Pharaoh's, let my people go. And he does the signs. Well, remember, the Egyptian magicians could do many of them. There were a number of signs that the Egyptian magicians also could do. Aaron threw down his rod and it turned into a snake. They threw down their rods. They turned into snakes. Of course, Aaron's rod ate their rods. But nonetheless, they could turn the, their rods into snakes and, the, and, and others. But there was, there was one. There were several, but the first one. Remember, Moses told Aaron to strike the ground with his rod and the dust comes up. And the dust turned into gnats little stinging insects. And the Egyptian magicians come to Pharaoh and say, we, we can't do this. I mean, others of them we've been able to do, but this one is the finger of God. That's what they say. This is God. This is exactly what Jesus says to them. And don't think they don't know it and he doesn't know it. Oh, he knows exactly what he's saying and so do they. But if I'm casting them out by God, then the finger of God has come to you. This is the finger of God. You know, Moses, you know, the Egyptian magicians. Oh, this is the exact expression and this is exactly what he's pointing to. And they would know. They don't even have a New Testament to distract them, by the way. They only have the Old Testament. And they loved the law of Moses. 
And then he gives a final closing illustration. He's like, look, once more, he's trying to reason with them. It's like, look, you guys can't do these. And who can do these miracles? This is the finger of God. And finally, he's like, okay. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. So you got a strong man. This is clearly Satan, by the way. Satan is the strong man who is guarding his, his people in his kingdom, and he seems undisturbed. But when someone stronger than him, that's the thing about being the strong guy. It's great as long as you're the strongest guy. But when someone stronger than you shows up, he attacks him and overpowers him. He takes away from him all his armor, which he had relied, and distributes his plunder. The point, of course, that Jesus is making is, look, the kingdom of Satan has bound these people. They're demon-possessed. We know they're demon-possessed. There's no argument. By the way, just, and we'll get to this more later, but not today. No one was ever wrongly diagnosed with demon possession. Anyone who ever brought their loved one to Jesus or the disciples because they were demon-possessed, it was so obvious, it was so easy to identify that no one ever wrongly diagnosed it. So, I'm casting out demons. It's not up for discussion. And Satan is the strong man, and I'm stronger. Can't you see this? Isn't this plain? Isn't this obvious? I'm not building the kingdom of Satan. I'm not building the kingdom of darkness. I'm not over here building what Satan is doing. I'm tearing it down. I'm releasing his people from his grip and bringing them into the kingdom of God. And then he ends with this. If you're not with me, you're against me. And if you don't gather with me, you're scattering. Jesus is like, it's time. It's time to draw the line. It's time to draw it as big and bright and make it as clear as it is. And you need to stand on one side or the other of this line. You need to get on board or you're the enemy of God. Decide. He's surely going to be crucified, of course, and this is the ministry of Jesus. There is a moment to look at people when they, they have all the light they need. They have everything they could possibly need. In fact, he won't talk about it here, but he does in the Matthew passage, that you're going to end up blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I mean, you have taken the very signs that God has provided you with that were plenty sufficient to convince John the Baptist and should be plenty sufficient to convince anybody who needs to be convincing. And you are, instead of being convinced, are attributing them to the, to the very devil himself. But by the time you take the works of the Spirit of God and attribute them to the devil, you're done. Uh, there's no place else to turn. There's no, there's no more miracle. There's no more convincing. I mean, God is not going to twist your arm. You have all the light you have, and if you turn from it and declare that it's done by the power of Satan, forgiveness departs from you. You'll never be forgiven. You blaspheme the works of the Holy Spirit, there's, there's, just, there's no plan B. There's no place else to go. You're not going to be forgiven because you'll just never be convinced. Stand with Jesus or stand against him. Those are your choices. You're either with him or you're against him. There's no neutral position. There's no, well, Jesus was a good teacher, but, you know. Uh, no. No, actually, they're, good teachers don't stand up and tell people, I and the Father are one. God works, I work. 
And you just go down through the list of things that Jesus says. There's a reason why they're constantly picking up stones and trying to stone him. I and my father are one. Huh? <laughs> Who in the world would say that kind of stuff? Jesus either is the son of God or he's with Satan. He tells us we need to rely on him for our eternal destiny. If that's not true, he is satanic, right? You, you have to pick. It's one or the other. And neutrality is not an option. If you're neutral, you're against Jesus. And that's the line that Jesus is making as clear as he can. Indifference is rejection. You can't be indifferent to this. The works of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus demands a response. And if your response is, eh, I'm not going to respond, then you rejected him. So this is, and Jesus is, he's calm, he's reasoned, he, he just sits and discusses with them how they, it's obviously not making sense to think that somehow he's doing these works by Satan. And then he calls them to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, the works of your son are as plain as they've ever been. They're as clear. Even his harshest critics did not deny the miracles. So, Lord, may we faithfully declare and live and speak truth into a culture and a world that so desperately needs it, a world that doesn't even believe in truth, that wonders if there is such a thing. May we go forth as your ambassadors. May we go forth and declare and live truth, kindly, compassionately, with reason. Uh, we thank you that as we see the life of Jesus, that um, he is calm and presents. Um, occasionally, he drives the money changers out, but those are the great exceptions. On the whole, he simply teaches, and may we exemplify that. Give us boldness to speak the truth. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.